Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. seven or eight years old and I'd just run with those which were your usual G, C and D you know, there's about 10,000 songs you can play on those three chords yeah, yeah, yeah so you need and then right. I just watched other people's fingers and oh, what's that oh, it's an A minor oh, it's a B minor okay and all of a sudden you have a repertoire of chords I've never been into lead uh-huh. I wouldn't know how to play lead guitar if it punched me in the face but um, I can play enough to write and that's all that's ever really interested me how do you write do you write on a guitar do you write on a piano depends what band i'm working for (laughs) down and out strikes me as a piano band yeah totally um with the down and outs um the whole piano thing is just something that i it's only the last 10 years where i've really gone gung-ho on the piano and i only do it in my time off i would carry one on the road and i mess about only in hotel rooms on days off just to you know just for my own fun and sanity yeah kind of yeah. but at the same time once i learned to play other people's songs i started branching out and it all started really when we did on through the night uh at titner's park in 1979 um it was ringo Starr's house he'd bought it off off uh, john lennon yeah so you might be familiar with the old white piano in the old white room with the old white suits when they did imagine the, of imagine course video. yeah that was the rec room with the pool table and where we played doctor hook in the medicine show at pool as they were leaving and we were arriving you know um was a piano in the lounge and i just started hitting the middle c and you know and working that kind of rundown stuff that you'd hear on bowie songs like oh you pretty things or changes or all the young dudes and I just started messing around with it. And I didn't really take it much further until we started mid-90s. I bought a piano and then I just tinkered away. But I went nuts on it um, about 2010. Well, a friend of ours in Sheffield passed away. He was a DJ. And he started at the same time as the band. And we kind of grew up together. Yep. And when uh, after he passed away, his wife organized some um, a memorial show for him at the City Hall in Sheffield. And she, she wanted me and Sav involved. And I had the down and outs by then. And I said, well, Leopard aren't available, but I can get the down. And she says, it's not about doing Leopard songs, but I want you to do at least one. I want you to play the songs that we played at his funeral. Okay, so name them. So she said, Animal. I went, okay, that's fine. Tie your mother down, my queen. I said, oh, we can pull that one off. 
And he said, funeral for a friend, love lies bleeding by Elton John. And I just said, so you've got to be kidding me. That's 11 and a half minutes of absolute <laughs> classic Elton John in classical mode. She goes, well, will you give it a go? <laughs> I said, how long have I got? She said, four and a half months. So I literally sat at that piano every day for hours and hours and hours trying to learn to play Love Lies Bleeding. And did you pull it off? We, uh, yeah, well, here's the, here's the truth of it. Kind of, yeah, we did. Um, there's a version of it. It's actually out. We put it out for Record Store Day, and it's one of the bonus tracks on, I think, the second Down and Outs album. And it's on YouTube. And all I've seen the video on YouTube, yeah. Um, it was recorded at the City Hall. It was the first time we'd ever played it. That's the actual real live version. And stood over my shoulder as I'm playing were three members of KISS. Who were which, which three? Uh, Gene, uh, Eric, and Tommy. Uh, Paul wasn't in town. But they were playing the arena the night after, and their hotel was right next door to the City Hall. And they heard I was in town, so they came over to say hi, and they stuck, stuck. And this Gene said to me, says, are you really going to try and do that? I said, well, you're here. <laughs> you can watch it for yourself. You let me know. And we did it. We pulled it off. And it sounded great, you know. Um, and I, and from that moment, I just thought, well, if I can play Little Lies Bleeding, you know. I mean, I'm not going to go in for Rachmaninoff and all that kind of stuff. But um, I can play basic stuff, you know. I can pull that off. And then I started writing. I really started writing. And, and I think the next thing I did was write Another Man's War, which is the first track on the album. We've spent about five or six years piecing this album together because is that just because of other commitments motherships yeah as i call them yeah 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 yeah. leopard choir boys vixen and wayward sons are all very busy bands you know and um in fact the wayward sons albums out the same day as the down and outs album so phil martini the drummer in a competition boy, there you boom, go <laughs> two albums at once. you know um and you know we'd, we'd be working and then i'd get like maybe a couple of months off and i'd say to, i'd ring paul and griff so you guys, you know, well, we're in tour in Europe for another six weeks, but we're free after that. And so I'd grab them for four days and get them in. And so it worked out that once I'd got all the demos down and they all signed off on the demos, we were listening to the demos for this album while we were shooting the video for, I think, one of the boys back in 2014. So that's how long some of these, they were maybe it's half of them were written by then. Obviously the Bowie tribute song, Good night, Mr. Jones was written after he died. What a beautiful track that is. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was. I, can, I had I ask, to get can I ask that you about out of your me. thoughts and headspace the day you found out that news. Uh, yeah, I remember that specifically well, actually. I was in bed and my phone was on silent, but it kept going. I'm like, God, what's going on, you know? And I picked up the phone and said, Have you seen the news? Which is always somebody's died. And they said, Yeah, David it's never Bowie, good news, is it? Yeah, David Bowie died. And I went, Nah, he didn't. And I turned on Sky News, and at 8 o'clock, boom, David Bowie dead. I'm like, Jesus. So I don't know what it was like for his family or his record label, but just as a fan that's in the music industry, my phone never stopped. And people calling me up, crying, and what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I'm like, that's, you know, I mean, that's, it was, for our generation, this was as big as Elvis, if not yeah. bigger, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know? um, you just don't expect it even though you do, you know what I mean? It's like this day, and especially 2016, it was only January, so we really didn't know what to expect. But that whole period of time was awful, really. 28th of December, if 2015 was when Lemmy died. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's Bowie, and then it was Buffin from Mott, and everybody. And I remember when I did my radio show uh, for Planet Rock, doing the, like, the year review in December of that year, I did a roll call of everybody that had died that meant anything to any of us that might be listening. And it lasted over the whole intro of Anthem by the Sensational Lux Harvey Band, which is about a minute and a half. There was that many went, you're like, because the thing is, you know, the music industry has changed a ton since we started out. You don't really have too many bands nowadays that last five years and then they're gone. Like, you know, Slade and Sweet, I mean, with the greatest respect, they're still, you know, we still listen to their music, but they, they hit stride up or they just stopped playing or they died or whatever but people like Bowie or Fleetwood Mac or you know Tom these, Petty Prince Tom, you know they've these, been yeah. around for years and they were still going and you just didn't want them to die and music's moved on since the 70s where they're all now burnt into our retinas and deep into our DNA and you just don't want them to ever go away and it's kind of scary that you've got the Stones and McCartney in the mid to late 70s and uh, Ringo and sooner or later we're going to be all that generation's going to be gone 
And now, then it'll be now what? You know, and who steps into film? It already sort of feels like that because there's so many bands of your generation that are perhaps not passing away but retiring. Yeah. You know, a lot of these bands like ACDC, Aerosmith, Black Sabbath. Ah, but our ACDC, are they really retiring? (laughs) 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 Maybe you can tell us, Joe. (laughs) Well, I've seen the photographs, but um, the ones that were at least, you know, put up online. I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. It's it's crappy, really. I mean, in many in many ways, we, as in the Def Leppards, we are only in our late fifties, early sixties. You know, when you look at Aerosmith, they're like early seventies. Yeah. Stones mid seventies. Uh, ACDC will be pushing seventies. Um, there's you know us Bon Jovi, you two are all kind of you know late fifties on average. I'm guessing. Um, so we're a long way off from that, but it it is it's. I mean, look at Barry Masters the other day, Eddie and the Hot Rod singer, sixty three. Yeah, God. and he was only at the Viva Rock Awards in March, and he seemed you know, in fine health. He was performing, and, and you're thinking sixty three? Are you kidding me? Yeah, you know there must have been some underlying problem there because you don't just normally die. It's not anymore. You did if you worked in a foundry in the Victorian days. You might not get past 35 back then, but this day and age, it's, it's such a young age to go. So every one of them, it's, I think it means more, it's compounded more by, you know, social media and yeah. whatever these days. If somebody passes away 20-odd years ago, you read about it eight days afterwards in Melody Maker, and it's some footnote, and it's, it's put across as a footnote. But nowadays, it's in your face, so they all mean a lot more. And the fact that they've, you know, if somebody died in, say, David Byron, who was a singer in Uriah Heep, was out of the band anyway, but died in 1977. He hadn't really established himself as a human being in our DNA long enough for too many people to mourn. Whereas, say, if it was Paul Rogers now, who's been around as long as Uriah Heep, but he's done all the free and the bad company and still out there doing his Paul Rogers thing whenever he chooses to. When that happens, it's going to mean a lot more because it's a 40-year... Uh, relationship you've had mm-hmm. with him rather than just a four-year relationship that we may have had with David Byron. So it's it's a totally different world and it's, it's a scary one, you know. And that was nothing to do with the answer. I was trying to give you on something else. We've really we're, got off time. We were talking here. about down and outs and uh, good night, Mr. Yeah, Jones. Yeah, we and... were into the, uh, the writing of the songs and all that kind of stuff, weren't we? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, the uh, Another Man's War was written after I did the, uh, you know, after I so I like this piano arc. It's fun. And, you know, Leopard were on a, a high, a usual six months off between tours or whatever. And it was time to do some writing. And I wasn't really trying to write away from Def Leppard. I was just writing stuff that didn't sound like Def Leppard songs. And um, I just lived with them. And then I demoed them and played them to the guys. And uh, we all kind of pieced it together bit by bit. We did the drums in London. We did the bass in Florida. We did everything else in my studio in Dublin, which sounds fragmented but less so than Exile on Main Street yeah 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 you know yeah, what I mean yeah, which yeah. is renownedly their best album supposedly um, I would say so what's your favourite uh, Tattoo You it is okay yeah, she's my little my rock favorite. and roll a little TNA which is what a tune. Uh, an album that was more of an accident than anything else Chris mm-hmm. Kimsey apparently went down into the vaults and pulled out all these songs and said to him what the hell are you not doing these songs why are you not doing these songs Start Me Up and a lot of those songs have been knocking around since Black and Blue or It's Only Rock and Roll. Yeah. You know, so for me, that's it's Tattoo is my favourite. But, um, you know, I also like a lot of their, you know, as, as Alan Partridge would say, the best of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Through the Past Darkly, which is one of their first compilations, is still one of my favourite. I know that. It's, it's got the um, hexagonal shaped vinyl, hasn't it? They're pushed up against the glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their nose is bent and stuff. And it's all just Jumping Jack Flash and Satisfaction and all that kind of stuff. But it's just a great record. You know? Last time. Um, with the piano stuff, it's just I was writing and writing and writing. And and it, consequently, with this, this new album, This Is How We Roll, two songs got written on guitar. The title track and a song called Boys Don't Cry. And the rest of them were all written on piano with guitar in mind, which meant that it was more leaning towards Elton John. And, you know, like Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting is obviously a guitar song, but it's Elton, yeah. which is a piano guy. It's like that boogie-woogie rock and roll you know, style, yeah. So it's got that kind of stonesy faces, even choir boys-ish type uh, vibe to it. Um, but the rest of them are all very influenced by my 70s. Leon Russell, Ian Hunter, David Bowie, Sparks... Um, what a great band! You know, Obviously all Bowling's that kind of any, any Queen, anybody that had piano in the rock 
it's a bit more, you know, which is, that's a, the major distinction between Down and Out and Def Leppard is the piano. Well, the, the interesting thing for me is obviously rock and roll when it began was very much centered around the piano with Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard. And then Absolutely. in more recent years, and saxophone as well, and in more recent years, you don't get many bands riffing on that. The Struts are a band that do that style very well, but a lot of modern rock doesn't have that piano or sax kind of no, element at all. I mean, when you look back at the originators, in fairness, if you had to put them in order, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry, Chuck Berry would come out on top because, and that's mostly guitar. Yeah. But again, there was saxophone, but there was lots of sax and piano on Jerry, on uh, on Little Richard. And Little Richard's voice for me was better than Chuck Berry's. Ah, but Chuck Berry wrote incredible. the most incredible songs. His lyrics were poetry. Yeah. They absolutely were poetry. You know, uh, Sweet Little Rock and Roller, uh, Don't Be Good, High All School Confidential, kind of just, just amazing stunning, stuff, yeah. stunning lyrics. Maybe not so much my dingaling, yeah. <laughs> but um, the rest of it was great. You know, um, I, I prefer, in fairness, uh, Little Richard over Chuck Berry, but I respect all of them. Even, even Jerry Lewis, who is Ian Hunter's huge, ultimate hero, really. And he, a lot of what Ian does comes from Jerry Lee, but a lot of what I do comes from Ian, but not from Jerry Lee. So it's a spillover. I like Ian. I don't particularly like Dylan, but Ian loves Dylan, and Ian sounds a bit like Dylan. But I'm not. I prefer Ian's Dylan to Dylan's Dylan, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, the piano's uh, Queen with a probably the best example of the uh, the greatest rock and roll band to use piano. I mean, Zeppelin used it to a point, but they actually used organ more than piano. Yeah. Paul, John Paul Jones played keyboards, but not much piano. They did a little bit of piano here and there, but it was mostly organ um, or you know, even synthesizers towards the end. But Queen with Fred, you know, I mean, you just can't beat that. And there's Sparks, a lot of piano on there. When Sparks, the rock band, you know, mm -hmm. the Come On On My House, Indiscreet, um, uh, and what was the other one? Propaganda. Um, they were like a rock band with piano. So were Mott. And, you know, so those kind of bands influenced what I was doing. Maybe a little bit of Humble Pie, but mostly Elton and Bowie, in fairness, if I had to name two. More so than even Mott, really. I think it sound, this album sounds less like... Well, the first two were obviously very, very influenced by anything to do with Mott Hoople. Yeah. But I kind of figured we'd done it to death, and I wanted to use that as a template, but I didn't want to just copy it. So, yeah, there's a few little bits that sound like maybe Ian or Mott, but I think mostly it, it sounds just like a generic 70s sound of pick anybody that played piano, whether it be, you know, Billy Joel or it be Leon, Leon Russell or, or Sparks or Queen or Bowie, you know. For anybody who doesn't know the history of the band, could we just backtrack a bit and tell the story of how Down and Outs as a project came about? Uh, sure, yeah. I was on tour in... Um, actually, no, I wasn't. It was before the tour started. I got a phone call from Trudy Hunter, Ian's wife, saying, shh. Actually, it was an email. Right, 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 right. Uh, Confidential. Says, yeah. <laughs> they're reforming in October. And this is the first time in how how many years? Uh, well, they split you... in 74, and this is 2009, right, so, so what, 35 years? 35 years, yeah, well. Um, and so I basically just went, oh, my God. And it's and, a dream uh, for you, like oh, as a fan, right? Oh, of course, right? you know. So just to see it. Did is I rang my account manager and said, "Don't book any gigs for October because I'm not, doing, I'm not going to turn up for them if you do." <laughs> um, and so then I rang her up and went, "Are you kidding me?" She goes, "No, no. They've, they've decided the original five piece are going to get back together, and they want you on board. They want you in because I'd been, you know, you'd been a who's champion. The fan? Of, who's of, your yeah. favorite band? Motley Hoople. And it gets back to the band when, as as we became popular, people said that guy Def Leppard keeps going on about us all the time. Because you were just uh, name checking them in interviews all the time. And right? I met, you know, I met them all, all of them over the years. Ian, I got to know really well. Ian uh, uh, over in Watts, I used to hang out with him when he had his junk shop in Acton. Uh, him and Buffin came to see Leopard on the Hysteria tour, you know. So I and Mick Rouse, I saw him all the time. So these guys were kind of in and out my, you know, life. Every couple of years, you'd be backstage with them or see him in a, some award shows or whatever. And um, so anyway, they said they wanted you involved. And I said, what, introduce them on stage or something? She goes, no, they're doing five different artists opening them, opening for them on each night. They want you to open on the last night. So, I said, well, obviously Leopard can't do this. It wouldn't work. Yeah. So Mick Brown, who was promoting the shows, also looked after the choir boys. And he said, they've willingly volunteered to be your band for the night. Spike will step aside. And I said, okay. So 
Paul Gearing, the guitar player, became my go-to guy. And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. And by then we were on tour. We're about to hit the road. And I thought to myself, what would the 15-year-old me sat in the front row want to see the 50-year-old me doing if I was opening for Mott? I thought everything they did after. So there's this period between 75 and 77 um, where after Mott the Hoople split up, Ian went solo with Ronson. Uh, Mott the Hoople changed their name to Mott and got Nigel Benjamin and Ray, Ray Major in to replace Hunter and Ronson. And then they morphed into British Lions when they got rid of Benjamin and John Fiddler joined, who used to be in Medicine Head. So I had this, that period is what I went for. So it was all the songs off Ian's first solo album, off his Overnight Angels album, off the first two Mott albums and one track off British Lions. And I thought, this would be interesting as a Mott fan to go, oh my God, I never thought of these again. And that's exactly what happened. About a dozen kids grabbed us in the foyer during the interval and basically said, I can't believe what I just heard. Are you going to record them? Early never entered my head that we would. It was a forty-five minute show that would never be, give me a one-off thing. That's it. Would yeah. never be repeated. You know, I had it filmed just for my own prosperity, as you know. And eventually, yeah. that came out on DVD. Um, but I just wanted a momentum for myself, a memento for myself. And and um, so I said to the guys after the gig was over, I said, "So while they are fresh in our DNA, do you want to record them?" And they said, "Absolutely." So they went into a studio. A friend of theirs got a studio and they recorded all the backing tracks in a couple of days, sent over the files to me in Dublin and I finished the record off and that was my regeneration. We put it out through uh, Classic Rock magazine free. Yep. We released it officially a couple of months later, got released in the States and started doing really well at radio in There's America. a couple of hits on the album, right? Well, yeah, England Rocks went top five right in the middle of the British petroleum oil spill. So God knows how that works. You know, <laughs> we weren't the most popular people in America, but England rocks is in the top five of American. And then Overnight Angels went to number one on America. The whole of the nation were playing it for 14 days, more than any other song. And I'm like, well, we seem to have got a legitimate second band on the go here. This is nuts. And because we'd given the CD away in, in uh, Classic Rock magazine, and then they put on the High Voltage Festival, they asked us to do that with Hunter and Ralphs as guests. Ralphs had to pull out. Ian came over. Um, the whole show overran. Um, we went on just before ELP, got pulled off, ended up getting on the front page of The Sun on Monday for getting into some seven-man, 42-man brawl, according to them or whatever. Amazing. About six people, actually. Big old fight, but you know, which was hilarious and very 70s of us. But the funny thing was, when we went on, all of you know the kind of six, seven thousand that you can see down the front. We're all singing, shouting, and pointing, and I know that those kids didn't know those songs before the CD came out. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. Many of them yeah. did. So I knew. I'm looking around, going, "This worked. It, giving it away really worked." You know, so it established us because I knew it was just a, a side project. It was something that was never going to dictate my life, but it was something I could do on the side. Um, was there instant chemistry there with the guys as well? Yeah, with the totally. Players? When we first met, we, we were in this crappy little rehearsal room somewhere in uh, Putney. It was one of those archways that mm -hmm. often get turned into mechanics shops. Yeah, you know? yeah. And you go through this half door and you bend it and, it and you're in this crappy little dump. And it was all very gentlemanly handshakes when we first met. I, don't, I met Griff years ago when Choir Boys opened for Aussie, but he's the only one I knew. But after two hours of playing, we're all hugging and off to the pub. Because, you see, this was October the 1st. I, rem I remember it because I turned up the first day of the first Mott gig. And what we would do is rehearse during the day and then go and see Mott. So we went to see all four. Were all the shows, shows in London? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hammersmith. Or right. the Labatt's Apollo, but sorry, it's the Hammersmith Odeon. And so we rehearsed on the first, second, third and fourth. And then we did the gig on the fifth. But all through that summer, they were rehearsing the songs during Choir Boy sound checks. And I was in the back lounge of my bus playing away to the cassette or the CD or whatever the, my laptop. The format was at the, the time. The songs. <laughs> so I could learn to play rhythm guitar and basically rub my head and pat my belly at the same time. I was playing rhythm guitar and singing so that when we turned up, we'd all done our homework. Yeah. So rehearsals went really smoothly and it, it, it went really, really well. Now, we've, we've had three bass players, so we've kind of become Roxy music in the, in the sense of like... Have we got a settled base? We have now because Cher Ross, who's in Vixen, 
she's fantastic and she's been on board since the the uh, the tour 2014 and she played on the live album and she's played on the the new album so it's a kind of a steady lineup now even though it's only every five years yeah 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 but um that's and the do you all write you know, together how does the writing no work? i wrote everything myself right um not not out of ego yeah yeah, yeah. it was more a case of uh needs must really they they were busy doing their own thing and I was very afraid of the fact that the two bands, I think the down and outs lean closer to the choir boys than they do Def Leppard. And I was a little afraid that if they came in with some kind of sleazy rock riffs, that the argument could be, well, they should be on a choir boys album. Yeah, makes sense. And I said to her, I really don't want to upset your camp. by So let, let me just take the lead here. And if you don't like any of the songs, say so. I want these to be a, a kind of a democracy to a point. But it is... Let's be honest, it is a bit more like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, I suppose. It's not a dictatorship by any means. Everybody in the band absolutely added something to these songs. They brought in their own flavours that made them so much better than my demos. But um, from a songwriting point of view, I'd finish a song and send them the MP3 of it and say, what do you think? And they'd all sign off on it, going, it's great, love it, you know? And I knew then that I wasn't making any... I wasn't treading on anybody's toes, that respect on in either camp either leopard or or, or choir boys because i'd play the things to the guys in leopard and say i've written this and they go that's really great none of them said you can't use it for anybody else that's for us assumedly it makes it easier having def leopard be such a huge band that they're not going to go or oh, they're well worried about down and outs becoming no, bigger and eclipsing and they're at the same time they also are very encouraging about it i mean i played the album to sab this summer and he said it's one of the best records he's heard in 20 years you know, I mean, to, for your own bass player to say something like that is very encouraging because a lot of bands, I know for a fact that when one of them does a solo record, everybody pretends that they never heard it, even though the <laughs> first thing they yeah. do is get me a copy, I want to yeah. see how bad it is. <laughs> you know, these, they're all very supportive. We are of each other's, you know, uh, same with the, the Last In Line stuff or Delta Deep for Phil. Um, we're all very encouraging of each other to go do your thing, whatever, because it clears it clears out the cobwebs of one corner of your brain, so you can come back to the mothership with a fresh idea. And there's, I think it's very healthy for any artist that's in a soap opera, which is what we are, to step out of it into an indie movie now and again, uh, and stretch your wings a bit, because um, sometimes you can write songs that you just know that are great songs, but they don't fit for. And I'm not going to use the word format. Because we don't work to a format, but you know that you know, Goodnight Mr. Jones was never going to be a Def Leppard song, and so they weren't going to put any kind of claim on it. You know, it was it was there's no overlap as far as I'm concerned. So the guys just let me get on with it, and like I said, I, I, they'd learnt the songs by listening to the demo, so they knew what to play when they came in, and there was basically no dictating on my part. I said to, I wrote specific parts in these songs so that Paul Gearing could shine as a lead guitarist, which I believe he does brilliantly in songs like Goodnight Mr. Jones, Last Man Standing. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that song, Last Man Standing. And even Let what It a Shine, track that the, is. The, sol- the solos are superb, you know. It's an amazing song, Last Man Standing. That's one of my favourites. Yeah, I was very um, I was very happy about? with that one. When I first started putting the piano thing together, in its very basic form, I thought, oh my God, I'm writing a song that sounds like Joe Jackson. Because he did have that kind of late 70s, like, step, well, slowed down version of Stepping Out. It's, it's where you've got a, the right hand doesn't the right hand moves a, a tone and the left hand stays on the root note. It's, uh, I don't even know what the technical term for that is because <laughs> I don't play, I can't read, I just play by ear. And um, I put it together and I thought, this, this is, it's got all that like perfect setup for the, if I get the right mood musically, I, I just have to get the right lyric. And when I came up with the line, you know, um, God took an axe to my family tree, I knew straight away it's like, Christ, that's some statement as an opening line, and it, it was it was a perfect blend. The two together. You're not going to write a lyric like "Let's get rocked" over a so- music of let's you know of Last Man Standing. So it really had to be mood for mood, you know. But um, yeah, I was very happy the way that it turned out. The whole record, really. But there are standout tracks, obviously, to a point. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, I want to go to Def Leppard for a little while, if that's okay. Um, What was the first tour you did in the U.S. with Leppard? Was it the Ted Nugent... Scorpion no, the first tour. tour we well, it was that was the same year. The first tour we did was about two weeks worth of work up the west coast with Pat Travis, which is great for us as kids because I saw Pat Travis open for the Sensational Alex Harvey Band at the City Hall in Sheffield in '76, and then I saw him at the Sheffield Top Rank when Nico had then joined, who's now in Maiden. He was playing drums. He'd just come out of Streetwalkers and he joined. Uh, oh, Trust actually, I think he'd been in Trust. Then he joined uh, Pat. Oh, no, he was in Trust after. He was in Trust Before Maiden, that's right. He was in Streetwalkers before he was in Pat Travis. And um, so I saw Pat Travis a bunch of times, and three years later, we're opening for him. It's like, wow, this is cool. You know, we were just kids, you know. Well, what was it like for you guys being... 16 years old. I was... Really? I was 20. Uh, Sav, Pete, and Steve were 17, 18, or whatever, you know. And uh, so we started off at the Santa Monica Civic in, uh, in just south of Los Angeles. Which was amazing for me because I got a Bowie bootleg from the Santa Monica Civic. So I'm like, this is so cool. I, I was knocking off so many, you know, tick, ticking that box. I'd, we'd, you know, previous to two months previous to that show, we'd headlined and sold out the Sheffield City Hall, which was the you know, first gig I ever saw was T Rex there in '71. And then all of a sudden, I'm stood. I remember standing where I saw Mark Boland stand when we went in for sound check. And I looked back at where I, the 11-year-old me, was watching bowling from, and it looked so much shorter. You know, I could almost spit to the back wall, but when I walked through that door as an 11-year-old looking at the stage, it looked bigger than the O2 Arena in London, you know. It was incredible. But anyway, so we were in America. We got there 18th of May, uh, settled in for the day at the Chateau Mormont, which is where Led Zeppelin used to be. Of course, be. notorious rock you know? and roll hotel, and, yeah. Um, and then we played uh, on the 20th of May, 1980, was our first American gig ever, opening for Pat Travis. And we did, I think, 10 or 11 shows with him all the way up to Portland, Oregon, um, which was an 11,000-seater arena. And we'd been played a lot on the radio in Portland by then. Uh, a lady called Gloria Johnson... She was the first person to ever play us in America. She'd been playing uh, Rock Brigade or Hello America or something non-stop. So by the time we got on stage there, people knew who we were, and we were starting to go down pretty well. It was it was pretty incredible. Then we did a couple of weeks with Priest, uh, which was great, especially the days off, because me, Sav, and, uh, KK, and Glenn used to go golfing. <laughs> really? And there was no there was no regulators on the uh, on the. Uh, buggies back in those days so they would fly off the ladies tee and it was like skiing you know we'd be eight foot in the air god knows what we did to our backs but um we had great fun with them and then we did six weeks with uh, ted nugent and the scorpions we were third on the bill we didn't get sound checks we we're on at half seven finished by eight o'clock so we were around the pool till six turn up at a gig get your glad rags on play for half an hour and then go to the bar and obviously, or you're all young, free, watch, single guys. We would watch Nugent and learn. You yeah, know, yeah, try yeah, learn yeah. Some things. But, uh, you know, we were playing arenas, but in fairness, they were maybe only a third full by the time we went on. But we were learning how to play big buildings. And running wild, no doubt. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, young, free, and single. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. 20 years old in America. What are you going to do? Enjoy the fruits, <laughs> right? I had Ricky Warwick on this show the other week. 
And uh, I understand he's a good friend of yours. Oh, yeah, he was the best man at my wedding. And he was telling me the first night you met, he gave you an ecstasy pill. He gave yeah, me half a one. The first night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, stood, um, we stood on the side of a dance floor in Dublin. Um, actually, the first night I met him was, uh, yeah, we, we went to see Bowie. Bowie was playing, he'd opened his rehearsal room, which is a place called The Factory in Dublin. We rehearsed there all the time. There's a huge big room, and Bowie let 400 fans in. And, of course, I knew the promoter, so I... I got in. I saw Ricky. I'd seen him on top of the pops, but never met him. We eyed each other up over the room, and then we just met and had a beer, and, and then we went to a club. And all I remember is he says, "Have you ever done one of these?" And I went, "I don't know what it is." And he just says, "Try it." <laughs> okay. And we were stood on this dance floor, side of this dance floor, and it was about you know, I, we'd gone in there about ten or whatever, and I, I said, "Oh, she's pretty." Well, what time is it? Ten o'clock. Well, she's pretty. What time is it? Four o'clock. <laughs> And that, That's, and then, that was me. And I, then from then on, you're just best mates, right? in one second. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, we hung out. We were tight as thieves, man, until he moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, I produced two of his solo albums. Yep. You um, were almost in line. Well, you were in line and almost did the Black Star Riders record, right? But then some I was going to do that, but came up and, life just got in the way. And, and thank God it did, because the guy that they got in instead was great. I think he'd done Russian uh, people like that in the past as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was there. I was involved in with because Scott. I got Scott Gorham in to play some lead guitar on uh, on Ricky's solo record. And when they decided to revamp the whole Lizzie thing with, without John Sykes, that was all in Scott's mind. And he went, "Oh, you know, Ricky, because huge big Irish. There's an Irish connection." Huge Lizzie fan, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Yeah, I think it's going to be great." He said, and by the way, Leopard aren't working much this year, so if you need Vivian, I know he wants to do this. So, you know, in a roundabout way, I kind of got Ricky and Vivian into Thin Lizzie for that first tour. So, you know, we've been tight for years, you know, and I and I worked on some of his um, last solo record as well. Um, so, I mean, you know, we've. We've been around the blog. He toured with us 2002. He came out on the road with us for like 18 months, went to Japan with us, went all over America with us. Um, we got up to some pretty outrageous behavior <laughs> at times. But it was all good fun, you know. It was mostly just going to see other bands and hanging out and playing pool and watching soccer and stuff, you know. He's a great guy. He's a lovely, lovely guy. He's the best the man deal, at my wedding, he? you know. No better man to make a, a funny speech than Ricky Warwick. He was saying the tour you probably just mentioned there was him solo acoustic right yeah. and then the darkness and he was saying that the darkness were really dividing the crowd and he said that's always a sign of a band that's going to pop and become massive is people either loved it or hated it and you guys were obviously an early champion. I don't remember him being on the same tour as the darkness. Um, we had the darkness open for us on their first album when we did yeah. uh, arenas, but I don't remember Ricky being on that tour. Yeah, yeah well, apparently he was oh. according to him. Well, well, again, maybe he took more ecstasy than I did. Um, <laughs> But he, he, I remember we did a load of gigs around America where it was literally just him and a guitar. And, you know, I mean, that's not an easy job to kind of warm up our crowd with just an acoustic. And Japan was a little easier because they're, they're Japanese. They they sit in their seats and they're, they're listening. They listen because they want to try and pick up every single word because not a lot of them speak fluent English. They pick up on the odd thing. Whereas an American audience are more, get on with it, you know. Um, but he did fantastically well you know and he, he's those first two solo albums um tattoos and alibis and love many trust few i think a songwriting is just phenomenal absolutely i was so proud to help him achieve getting them re, you know recorded because my studio was there waiting to be worked on and myself him and ronan pretty much made that record together we didn't really use many other musicians we used scott to do some solos but the rest of it was just us all in hand doing it on our own and um, they worked out really well because he had the songs and I'd really, that's why I wanted to do them. I really believed in his songwriting. I thought it was, it was superb. Still is. He's just written, you know, he's co-written this, the latest Black Star Riders album, which I think is their best album. I really think this is the best one they've done. And I know from having heard this upcoming solo record, um, there's some great songs on there as well. He's an amazing writer. He needs to be heard by more people. And I, I was just trying to do my bit to help him achieve that. Well, he said very much that there was a couple of people in his life, you, Andy Cairns was another, that basically brought him back from the brink. And yeah. were like, you can't walk away from music, you've got so well, much I'm, still when to When I say. met Ricky, he was working, he had a band on the go, but he was basically working as a sandwich delivery guy for a gym. Right. And it's like, well, that's got to stop. Yeah. 
you know, so... And now he's living in Beverly Hills, so he's the, the epitome of, you know, the American dream, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he yeah. Had to do, he had to go to America to achieve this, but the funny thing is, he's gone over there to achieve bigger success in the UK, and I think that's what he needed to do. You've got to live, you've got to go wherever your heart tells you to go, you know. I went to Dublin. What he took went you to Dublin? To Dublin? And then he, he left. <laughs> he buggered <laughs> off to, uh, to Los Angeles, you know. What took you out to Dublin, Joe? It's my favourite city in the world, I think. Well, I everybody always thinks it. I went there because of these, some, these tax breaks, but I could have gone to Belgium if I wanted to do that, you know. I went to Dublin because we did go to, to Dublin to work. We had six months there from February to August of 1984. Um, and then we went to Holland in, in, in August of 1984 to start recording what turned into the Hysteria album. But while we were in Dublin... I really fell in love with the city. Um, I came from Sheffield, which is a, a big, big industrial city. And then I moved to London and I hated it. Didn't I like I moved to Isleworth and then I moved outside even further. I'm like I, I didn't like the vibe. Yeah, the gigs were great and all that kind of stuff, but I wasn't keen on, on just the speed of it. It wasn't my thing. And I went to Dublin and I realized it was a capital city on the water. Yeah. It's a million people, not 10 million. It's so, it's much more in line with Sheffield in that respect. And I loved the atmosphere of the place. I loved the people. I knew within 10 days, I wouldn't say they'd been friends by then, but I had acquaintances within 10 days that I hadn't even achieved a half of that amount in London. People are just warmer and friendlier, aren't they? You no, know, I mean, I remember we went to see Simple Minds at this place called the SFX. And while we were backstage, because our promoter, Dennis Desmond, our manager Peter mentioned at the time. He said, "Look after my boys, you know." And he'd give it passes to go and see whoever. And we were in the the green room backstage, and this guy with a kind of, you know, this this um, pilgrim hat on, <laughs> comes up to me and he goes, uh, "Yeah, congratulations on last year's success, boys. I heard you're on town. Here's my number if you need anything." It was Bono. And that's how it's been ever since. Bono introduced me to David Bowie in 1989. You know, these guys, and there was all these other Irish bands, Clanad, Stockton's Wing. I was come out and play soccer. Oh, we're going out for a meal. Do you want to come with us? I'm like, when did this ever happen to me in the past? You know, so all of a sudden, there was a social life as well as us working there. And when I went to Holland to get on with doing the record, it was great, but I just couldn't wait to go back to Dublin. I just didn't want to go back to my house in, in England. Didn't want to, you know. Um, I kept going back and I kept telling myself, no, no, you, you just, you know, you're in a midlife crisis or some of the age of 23, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but then no, I realized every time I went back to Dublin, it's like, this is my speed. This is it. And I've been, I've lived there ever since. Have you got any good Lemmy stories? Was he a pal of yours? Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of, Lemmy. I wouldn't say he was a pal, but we, we knew each other. Uh, and when we happened to be in the same town, there was, there was a, a camaraderie there, you know, um, the first time I met Lemmy was at the Frank's Funny Farm years ago with Brian Robertson. So I can imagine what that was like. <laughs> um, I uh, I met him in 2001. I uh, was in L.A. rehearsing for a show that we were doing. It was the only gig we did that year. That's why I remember it in Houston at the Enorma Dome or whatever. And after we'd rehearsed, Lizzie were playing the uh, Whiskey, I think. Whiskey A Go-Go or Roxy or something. And I went... Because uh, Scott had called me and says, you know, come down. And I, so I just, they were just gone on stage. I walked to the bar. Who's leaning on the bar? Lemmy. And we, you know, we knew each other. And he's like, I'll, hello, lad, get you a drink. And um, so we propped up the bar all night. We watched Lizzie. And that's, you know, everybody thinks of Lemmy as this kind of just distorted bass, can't sing no melody guy but he loved bands like Lizzie and he loved melody and he loved rockabilly and he was big into the Stray Cats that's why he worked a lot with um, one of the guys at Slim the Jim yeah Slim yeah. Jim Phantom and anyway long story short he he invited me back to his apartment um, after the Lizzie gig um, I think we went to the Rainbow for about an hour or two and then we went back to his place which was hilarious because it's you know it was a, literally a tiny apartment where you had to climb over cart just piles of magazines or cartoons you know you got all these marvel comics and all these nazi memorabilia <laughs> and he'd be like i don't like him i just love the design <laughs> you know and all this kind of stuff and then he started pulling records out to play me records and he pulled this album that he'd done with slim jim and he put it on and he said listen har harmonies 
<laughs> as if he, because I'm in Def Leppard and we have this big vocal sound, I needed to be impressed by the fact that he said, Lemmy, I love what, I'm into the Ace of Spades stuff, don't worry, you don't have to try and impress me with this, you know. And he says, no, but I want you to hear it and tell me what you think. And I remember him saying to me once, he says, do you believe in what you do? And I said, absolutely. He says, you don't do it for the money. I said, no. We, we were big fans of Queen, the Beach Boys, Crosby, Stills, Nash. We were big into the harmony stuff. He says, well, good for you. He says, because I always worried. He says, now I know that it's real. I'm a much bigger fan than I was before. <laughs> he came to see us at uh, the Universal Amphitheatre a couple of times. Um, and the last time I saw him, Motorhead were playing the Olympia Theatre in Dublin. And after about one and a half songs, he had to go off stage because his voice had completely crapped out. And um, I thought, oh dear. And they were off for about 20 minutes and he came back on. And by the time he came back on, he'd actually cleared. And he didn't sound too bad. It was all right, you know. And I went backstage afterwards. And he was sat in the corner of the dressing room and he was really bummed. And I remember just sitting with him and I just shoved a drink under his nose and said, it wasn't that bad. And he's like, really? I said, no, let me, honestly, I'd tell you I'm a singer. I, I'm not going to bullshit. I've known you, I know you enough to not. And it wasn't. Yeah, you didn't sound like Paul Rogers. But it wasn't that bad. He actually was, and look at the audience response. They were totally on your side. And, you know, I mean, that's what you do with it. That's what singers, we're in the same union. We're there to boister each other's egos or at least make ourselves feel better. And that was the last time I seen him. But he was a, he was a great guy. I loved Lemmy. Still listen to his music all the time. I'm a big fan of, I, I actually loved his voice because it yeah. was, how the hell can you think you can get away with it? That's why if it came out of punk, that helped. Everybody could sing after punk. If you can, I can. That was the I mean, even me. One of the reasons I it was people like Barry Masters and Gary Alton from the Heavy Metal Kids and John Lydon and 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 whether it be Strummer or Jones in the class going well. Fuck if he can, I can. You know, and even though we went down a totally different route, we took all that stuff on board. Short solos, three minute songs. You know, for the most part, you know, we did have the odd epic and things like Overture. But we were genuinely writing pop rock songs like Riding to the Sun or short rock, hard rock songs like Get Your Rocks Off or Wasted, which were to the point, you know. And that all was born out of listening to things like, you know, Anarchy in the UK or Go Buddy Go or, you know, London Calling or whatever. You know, just short, punchy songs with... with Anthemic hooks, that's what we were after. Lemmy had them in spades, even right back as far as Silver Machine. Joe, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for oh. coming on the show. To bring it full circle, there is a song on the album, the one cover that you do, is The Tubes, isn't it? Yeah, White Punk's, White on, Punk's dope. on Dope. Which is the perfect hybrid of glam rock and punk. There we go. It really is, you know, I mean, it's got the same kind of chord sequences as things like um, Cracked Actor by David Bowie off Aladdin Sane, but it's got that energy of... of of a, of a punk band and, and the, even though they were from San Francisco and they, if you look them up on Wikipedia it'll say that they were basically like a, not a, so much a parody band but they worked on in, in that kind of artistic side of things where they would just like le- leech onto a movement and, and basically they would parody it to a point and if that was a parody of British glam and punk it was fantastically done and I totally believed in it and the thing about the Tubes was that they could sell out four nights at Hammersmith Odeon just without getting in the charts. They'd been on the whistle test maybe once. And when I first saw White Pogs on Dope, I couldn't get my head around it. I just thought it was one of the best things I'd ever heard. And when we did decide to do this third album, we were toying with the idea of doing covers once again, but we got we got bored of that conversation after about half an hour. But we did, we had all dis- decided that no matter what we do, come hell or high water, we're all we, we were all on board. We're doing white punks on dope, no matter what. It, a, it was removed away from Mop the Hoople, and it was just one of those songs that we just all wanted to do. It's a great track, a great it's cover a as well. Um, are there any live plans? Not at this moment. Not at this time, moment. purely because I've got this calendar thing worked out with a big red cross where nobody's available, and there's a lot of more red crosses than I wish there were. Right. But we're working on it. You know, I mean. The great thing about this album is, as I've said often, it, there's not much that sounds like it came after 1975, so it's not going to go out of fashion by next summer. Um, so if if we have to wait until May, June or July to do some maybe some festivals or something, I'd love to do the 10 club shows around the UK, but it's just availability. I don't want to use stunt people. Yeah, yeah It's yeah, not yeah. my record, it's us. And I, I wanted to keep, I want it to have that identity as the down and out. The most important thing right now is that the album's finally out. 
I mean, it's took a long time. I'm glad it's taken this long because it's a better record for coming out now than, say, two years ago. Um, I wouldn't have had half the songs finished, you know. Um, so the idea of it coming out now is, is like I'm happy with the way it turned out. It's more important to me than playing live. At the end of the day, even if we did do 10 shows, there's an 11th city that didn't get the gig. Oh, why didn't you play Glasgow? You played Edinburgh. Why didn't you play Liverpool? You play, Why did you play Leeds and not Sheffield? You can't be everywhere. And it's certainly very unlikely I'm going to do a 40-day tour of the US with this because <laughs> it's impossible. So the fact is that I can get a lyric video out, which is coming out in a few days' time, that goes worldwide from here to Tasmania and back instantly. That gets the songs out there. And that's my biggest goal is for people to hear these songs and take them on board. Judge them however which way you like or hopefully just enjoy them. And then, you know, given a chance to play some live shows, those that are involved that much into it and want to come and celebrate them live with us, we'll be there to do it. But, you know, I'm working very hard to try and find a spot. Love it. Thank you, Joe. Good talking to you. And uh, I hope to see you again. Cheers, mate. Absolutely. You're welcome. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.